red, red violets are blue, a flea bit me. I feel like it should be more like roses are red, like the blood of a bug. Um, violets are violet, like an alchemist jug. <laughs> Drop, well, yeah, it is a tautology, but that's done. If you drop the bug into the pot, it will get all gross, like a dollop of snot. And that snot, like my sperm, <laughs> will fill you with joy. Um, so, except <laughs> for me now, this Valentine's toy. <laughs> How's that? Gross enough for you? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Done. Now, the question is what would Ben Johnson write? It would be very different. Uh, <laughs> Oh. I was just going to say, why don't you do me a big lug? <laughs> <laughs> That's the film noir version. Uh, okay. Um, great class. <laughs> all right, so um, there actually is now a skeletal syllable on, um, on latte, so I don't know if it will be of any use to you except to show you... Um, something like um, uh, what the rest of the um, term will look like. And I think what it, what it will look like, for those of you who are like really looking forward to reading Crashaw and Vaughn, um, <laughs> not in this class. Um, were you really looking forward to Crashaw and Vaughn? Me? Yeah. You, you, you had that, oh did no, kind of look. Oh, I did? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't that Okay. Um, were you, huh? <laughs> I don't know any Crash Arvons. Okay, well. In that sense, yeah. It's gone with the poem. I mean, maybe it's enough to know the title. They are all gone into the world of life. Yeah, that it, it actually is enough to know the title. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great title and such a, um, like many poems with great titles, it doesn't quite live up to the title. But it's not that Vaughn doesn't get what a great title it is. He does. Um, it's just that <laughs> that's, that's a great title. Um, Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, Crashaw has the famous line uh, about um, the um, virgin weeping for the death of her son, and she goes around. Her eyes are, um, what is it, two, um, two moving fountains, two walking motions, two vast and compendious oceans, something like that. So basically, um, what should be this really moving um, idea of the virgin weeping for her son is that her she's walking around and her eyes are walking fountains. Um, and somehow it's just not moving. <laughs> um, but they were, so basically the, the um, just uh, some of this is in the Norton um, uh, anthology of 17th century poetry that you have purchased. Um, and so if you're really interested in the metaphysicals and in the direction that they go, um, 
what um, you'll find is that Herbert was essentially the greatest of um, the metaphysical um, students, Ephibes, to use Harold Bloom's term or Plato's term, um, followers of Dunn. Um, and then Vaughan and Crashaw and others, there's someone named Thomas Rehearn, um, were influenced by both Dunn and Herbert. And they're, um, they're really interesting, but um, to go back to the question, will you love them? Um, the way some of you love Dunn and some of you don't, um, very few people will love them. Many people will love Herbert probably uh, more than will love Dunn, um, but very few people will love um, that next generation. And so it's just played out in this class that we've um, spent a whole lot of time on Dunn, which I think is good, and, um, and uh, we'll go on from there. Um, the... Um, Yeah. Um, what we'll do, as you'll see from the syllabus, what, you, what we'll do after break, which you should do during break, are some of Dun, Dunn's more religious poems. So um, there are two sets of sonnets that we're going to look at. Uh, we already started looking at the Holy Sonnets, but now read through the Holy Sonnets. The table of contents in this book gives them to you together, even though the book itself um, is in chronological order, so you can find them in the table of contents. And um, also the set of sonnets called La Corona, um, that is the crown. And um, that's just a short set of interrelated sonnets, and um, their interrelationship is really interesting. Um, so read the La Corona sonnets and the Holy Sonnets over break. Um, so let's today, if we, if we can, we'll um, get to... Um, a nocturnal on St. Lucy's Day, but I'm not sure we'll, um, which, which we will all, all love, right? Even Han loves. <laughs> True? True. Yeah. Um, and um, if we can, we'll get to it. But let's look at Satire 3, which in this book is on page 29. Yes, kind pity chokes my spleen, um, which is a pretty great first line. Um, and um, what he's thinking about here is um, religion and truth and his relationship to them. Um, it's probably too long to read through before we start talking about it. Um, so maybe what we should do is um, someone will just read it um, in maybe 10 line sections, roughly. So does someone want to read through, let's say, line 9? To just go around right? Yeah, that's a good idea. Right. Yeah. Kind pity, kind pity chokes my spleen. Brave scorn forbids those tears to issue which swell my eyelids. I must not laugh nor weep sins and be wise. Can railing then cure these worn maladies? Is not our mistress fair religion as worthy of all our soul's devotion as virtue was to the first blinded age? Are not heaven's joys as valiant to assuage lusts as earth's honor was to them, alas? Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so the thing about a satire is that we now think of satire as a kind of sarcastic um, work, 
that is that it's uh, um, a satire is full of irony, and we can see that something is a satire because it overdoes it. Um, the some the related but somewhat older idea of satire that you get in Dunn um, is that it's a poem which is a kind of um, difficult, unhappy. Um, passionate meditation on what the world is like, on what the world is like when the world doesn't have to be like that way, or at least it feels as though the world doesn't have to be um, that way. And um, so satires don't have to be funny. We tend to think that if something is a satire, it's supposed to be funny. Um, but what a satire here actually means, what Dunn is meaning by that, is that it's um, a kind of moral essay where the, what makes the essay moral is not just that he's talking about moral issues, um, but that um, he's describing his own um, emotional um, um, involvement in um, his own emotional reaction to, his strong emotional reaction to, um, something that is not morally um, uh, harmonious or isn't in harmony with what, what um, an ideal moral um, order would be. And um, the idea of satire goes back to Roman poetry. Are, are there Greek satires? I can't think of any. Yeah, well, I mean, they're the actual satyr plays. Yeah, um, um, which is where the which is where the term comes from. Yeah, um, and and they make fun of the of the polis, right? I mean, part of the idea of a satyr play is that it's um, making fun of political situations. Yeah, I mean, I guess you would. I don't know if there are there are formal satires, yeah. but there there is a genre of satire yeah. um, in Greek. In Greek, I mean, something like. Um, what is the um, Lysistrata, mm -hmm. right? The play about the women taking over. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the idea of a long poem, with a long essayistic poem, um, I think is um, is Latin. It's Lucan and Juvenal, um, and then the English poets, and not only the English poets, but the English poets in the 17th century um, started imitating um, that mode. Um, and the high point of satire was the 17th and 18th century of that sort, of, of ferocious moral disapprobation of the way things are. And um, in Swift, that ferocity also becomes really, really funny. Um, and not only in Swift, but in Swift, the ferocity becomes really, really funny. Um, but satires need not be funny, and it's not like Dunn is trying to be funny and failing. Um, when he wants to be funny, he's pretty funny. Um, Okay, so kind pity chokes my spleen. Um, brave scorn forbids those tears to issue which swell my eyelids. What do you think? Um, how would you take um, the tone of that? What's odd about the first line? Let me ask it that way. Paraphrase the first line. Sorry? A lot of things are odd about it. Okay. Um, and um, 
Brave Scorn forbids those tears to issue which swell my eyelids. Maybe that's the easiest line to start with. That is, his eyes are full of tears, um, but he scorns to weep them. Um, why? Would not be manly? Well, um, yeah, so it wouldn't be manly to weep, um, but... It won't do anything, right. Um, how do you know that? Um, can railing then cure these worn maladies? <coughs> I cry, it's not going to fix anything. I'm just going to be crying. Although railing isn't the same thing as crying. Um, what does railing mean? Ranting. Yeah, um, you rail against things. That is, you say, you, that, that's where you express indignation. You know, it's just ridiculous. Um, that President Blind Hearts, I'm just making up a name um, at random, should um, get 4.9 million, I don't know, pounds or drachmas um, for doing nothing for, um, for this college. Uh, it's just absurd. Um, so you would rail against um, that sort of thing. Um, so the options are um, he can't laugh. Um, he can't weep. Um, what about railing? Um, so it looks like what will, um, again, sort of help you negotiate among these possibilities is that railing is, seems to be the option left um, if he can't weep and he can't laugh. Um, Spleen here doesn't mean anger so much as it, as it means contemptuous laughter. Um, so kind pity um, chokes my spleen. That's very done-like in its strangeness, because if pity is kind, which we think it is, um, that is, pity is a kind attitude towards people, um, and yet pity is choking something, um, which is what you were picking up on, Rhoda. Um, Generally, what we would say is rage chokes my you know, capacity to speak. I'm just so angry. I just can't say what I want. I'm choked with rage. Um, so the word choke is a sort of enraged word. Um, and you, you, what you don't really tend to say is, I'm just choked with pity for you, unless you mean choked up. But he doesn't mean that. Um, so it's almost as though his reaction to the world that he's seeing, to the situation that he's seeing, is such that even the good emotions are, um, are getting entangled in themselves. And um, words, harsh verbs, are going with kind nouns. Um, maybe kinder words, verbs like forbids, are going with harsher nouns like scorn. So kind pity chokes my spleen. Brave scorn. And then again, brave scorn is almost an oxymoron, although not quite. Yeah, tell me. Um, now it's, I don't know, did pity mean, was it more, wasn't it more positive than then? Because I feel like now pity is kind of like, it's patronizing. Like, would he think of it as patronizing? Therefore, his kind pity, he's realizing that he's being patronizing for people. Mm -hmm. He can't help it. I don't know if really, that's like the still same meaning that this um. yeah, we, yeah, I think it's a very interesting question because by the time you get to Blake, mm -hmm. who says, we would not pity if we did not make somebody poor. Mm -hmm. 
pity has a dubious moral connotation. It's, it's, it's known to involve condescension. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure about the Renaissance use of it. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's the modern uses, you know, I pity you. Or the mis- <laughs> I pity the fool. Yeah, the Mr. T version. I pity the fool. Um, you all know who Mr. T is? That's good. Do you know him as a cartoon character or as the real Mr. T? Sorry? Rocky three, I think. Rocky. Oh, that's. Yeah. No, that was Mike Tyson. Oh yeah, Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson. Different. I'm thinking of a different guy. Oh. Yes, but yeah, Mr. Mike T. Okay, so um, it doesn't have that connotation. It probably always morally has a little bit of a connotation of um, a superior person, someone not in trouble, um, able to feel for someone in trouble. Um, but you could, that can be a very positive, um, that can be described um, with, with a great positive re- resonance also, and with less likelihood of the scornful version, but here the word scorn is right there, so um, there may be a reason that we're feeling it so that way. Like empathy in this um, yeah, um, more like empathy for those who are in trouble um, in a world um, in which everything is trouble. Um, so kind pity chokes my spleen. Um, I would like to laugh at all this, but even that I can't do. Brave scorn, a kind of laughter, forbids those tears to issue which swell my eyelids. So I can't laugh, um, but my very desire to laugh means that I can't weep. So notice that it's pity prevents me from laughing, and um, laughing prevents me from weeping. Or I scorn to weep, I laugh at weeping. Um, but I'm too full of pity to laugh. Um, and all of this is coming out in a kind of explosive um, pressure of railing. Um, and once you feel that, it sort of falls into place. Um, do people, there's a famous um, uh, line of Duns from a sermon, among our wise men, I doubt not that there are many who would laugh at Heraclitus weeping, none who would weep at Democritus laughing. So Heraclitus and Democritus are um, in um, ancient philosophy, they're sort of set up as um, oppositional temperaments because Democritus was known as the laughing philosopher um, and Heraclitus um, wept at the way the world was. And so what Dunn is saying is, yeah, lots of people would laugh at Heraclitus weeping, um, but none who would weep that Democritus laughed. That is, we're not serious people. Um, we la- um, you should perhaps do both, or you shouldn't do either. Um, you sh- certainly shouldn't laugh at Heraclitus weeping. Um, and if you do laugh at Heraclitus weeping, then you should think about weeping at Democritus laughing. Um, so kind pity chokes my spleen, spleen. so um, I can't laugh out loud, but brave scorn laughs away those tears to issue which swell my eyelids. That is, my eyelids are swelling in order um, to try to issue, make those tears come out. I must not laugh nor weep sins 
and be wise. What does that mean? Sarcastic. Um, well, it is sarcastic, but um, just what's the relation of must and wise and being wise there? This is as hard as Dunn gets, I think, at least as hard as his poetry gets. Um, and it's not that hard, but it does take patience. So I think it's like you were saying before, laughter indicated that you weren't wise enough to realize how much trouble we were in in our time. Mm -hmm. then, then the wisdom comes from not laughing. Okay, so if I laugh, I would show that I'm not wise. And also if I wept, I would show that I wasn't wise. So in order to be wise, I, sh I um, couldn't laugh nor weep. And then the sarcasm, what, what would the sarcasm there be? What word is the container of sarcasm here? <coughs> I think this is a very modern kind of line. Um, well, you connect, I must not be wise. Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean by... If I want to be wise, I can't either laugh nor weep at mm -hmm. sins. Um, so why would it be foolish to weep about sins? Things are always going to happen in the heart of Yeah. What about in real life? That is, you know, just imagine that you went to U-Stand for lunch and you started weeping sins. What would people do? Laugh at you probably. Yeah, yeah. They would roll their eyes, like you know, um, give me a break. Um, and if you laughed at sins, you would also, in a different sense, show that you're um, a naive, because you would think that um, they were just so ridiculous that who would ever do such a thing. In other words, laughing at the ridiculousness of of um, people's sinful behavior would show you to be. Um, not aware that this is something real. And weeping at people's sinful behavior would show that you were just totally naive in thinking that um, this was terrible. Um, just be realistic. And laughing or weeping are ways of not being realistic. So the word wise there means something like um, being a realistic person, just understanding the way the world works. Um, you know, you're, you're showing yourself to be just um, a fool. Um, if you laugh at the idea that people are sinning, um, or if you weep at the idea that people are sinning. So the I must not there is a little bit of uh, if I want to maintain the respect of others, um, if I don't want to be scorned by others, um, not for sinning, but for being against sin, if I don't want to open myself up to their scorn, I better not laugh or weep. So to be wise, I can't laugh or weep. And we would say to be wise, I can't laugh or weep. Um, well, what about railing? Can railing then cure these worn maladies? Um, so there's sins and maladies everywhere. Maybe if I rail against them, that will help. Is not our mistress fair religion as worthy of all our soul's devotion um, and where do you think that's going to go? As what? Is not our mistress fair religion as worthy of all our soul's devotion as? Is that where you would have thought it was going to go if you didn't know the next line? No. <laughs> no, where would you have thought it would go? As love. 
Yeah, yeah. As, yeah. So, um, and in fact, Herbert, is, Herbert has a poem, um, as you'll see, um, in which he essentially asks the question, um, isn't religion worth the same kind of beautiful poetry that love is? Um, almost the form of the poem is the exact same question, but Dunn does that thing that he does, which is to set up an expectation. And as far as he's concerned, all he has to do is set it up. But now he can go elsewhere by giving you a different um, term of comparison from the one you're expecting. But the one you're expecting is still there. It's still um, echoing, um, never in the present of the poem, but in the past of the next line, you could say. Um, so uh, since we've talked a little bit about how the way Dunn uses metaphor, I just want to tell you about one other really important term in figurative language, which is the term called metonymy. Um, anyone know what that means? When a part stands in for the whole. So OK, so that's an example of metonymy. That's oh. called synecdoche. Um, so synecdoche is when you say, a sail upon the horizon, and your friend doesn't say, oh my god, a sail without a ship. Um, <laughs> what that means is that the sail means that a ship is coming. So synecdoche is when you talk about a part for a hull or all hands on deck. Synecdoche seem to occur all the time in, in um, nautical, um, <laughs> nautical contexts, um, but not only in nautical contexts, but all hands on deck or, you know, or give me a hand, well, here. Um, <laughs> There you go. Um, uh, metonymy is the more general idea that um, something that is um, that in a natural association of ideas will make you think of something else. Um, they will be in a metonymic relation to each other. And um, the standard examples of metonymy is something like um, crown for king. Um, that is to say. Um, the crown takes it very it takes it in very ill part that you should um, have um, uh, told Angela Merkel that we were eavesdropping upon her conversations, um, and so you wouldn't just look at the crown and say, "I don't know, that crown looks kind of inert to me." Um, but it's not that the crown is a metaphor for a king. Um, it would be more likely to call you know a father a metaphor for a king or. Um, something like that. But a crown isn't a metaphor. It doesn't act in any way like a king. But nevertheless, you see crown, you think king. Um, or if you say, you know, Washington and Berlin are at odds about, um, about the NSA spying activity. Um, well, it, no. Washington is dead, or the city of Washington is just sitting there under a blanket of ice and snow. Um, and it doesn't think, but th those are metonymic words. So the idea is a metonymy, or you know, the White House said today that. Um, um, in those cases, you might very quickly think we're dealing with metaphor, but we're not because there's no analogy between, and metaphors always suggest analogy. So the idea of metonymy is it's association of ideas rather than a replacement of something that is structurally like the thing it replaces, which is which is how analogy works and therefore how metaphor works. Does that make sense to people? Um, it's a hard idea, the idea of metonymy. You don't get taught it in high school um, because even though it pretty much works as importantly 
um, in our linguistic interpretation as metaphor does. Um, it doesn't have the same elegant one-to-one -one correspondence that you can show in the use of metaphor um, that makes it possible to explain metaphor to young persons. Um, it's much harder to explain metonymy to young persons. So this is my way of saying you're not that young anymore, sorry. Um, so Dunn tends to move, and this is what we saw in a valediction forbidding mourning, he tends to move from metaphor to metaphor through metonymies. So what we saw in a valediction forbidding mourning, for example, is that we get from um, trepidation of the spheres to the idea of the compass, not because in any way a compass is a metaphor for a sphere, but rather that the roundness of the sphere by natural association of ideas reminds you of the um, architects or surveyors or draftsmen's tool that um, enables you to draw something very round, um, namely the compass. And so there is um, a natural progression which makes a valediction forbidding morning work from one metaphor to another, but what Dunn does, which is so unusual, is to make his progression of metaphors relate to each other metonymically. Um, the term that will almost always be used for metonymy, and I think it's a helpful one, is metonymic slippage. That is, you kind of slip from one thing to another. Um, not one simply substitutes for another. Um, again, you know, the way um, um, a winter-seeming summer's night can substitute for the idea of things being um, both short and unpleasant. Um, but rather, one thing puts you in mind of something else. And um, for metaphor, it's one metaphor. I mean, for Dunn, it's one metaphor puts him in mind of another metaphor. And so his metaphors are metonymically related to each other. And that's the strange and interesting and cool thing about Dunn. Um, very few poets do that. Um, so we slip from metaphor to metaphor in Dunn um, by way of an association of ideas rather than by way of saying, well, one metaphor is kind of just like another metaphor. They're not in Dunn. Um, there's rather, you know, minds get you the idea of alchemy, not because a mine and um, an alchemist are, are the same thing, nor is one a decent metaphor for another, but rather um, the idea of gold and of looking for something precious gets you from the metaphor of love as a mine to the metaphor of love as an alchemical experiment. Um, and then the idea of love as an alchemical experiment, let's say, gets you to the idea of trying to produce something through chemicals um, that in the natural world is sort of dazzling and wonderful and comes out of um, the elan of life. But um, in alchemy, it's just throwing a bunch of things into a pot and hoping that a chemical reaction will produce um, something worthwhile. Um, and of course, mummies are preserved by chemicals. So the idea of a mine and then an alchemist's pot and then um, women as being um, mummies possessed or mummies when possessed, um, those are metonymically related to each other. 
Um, there's no natural metaphorical relation between them. They're metonymically related to each other. So um, since we're, we're th this is an example of that, that what you could say is, is not our mistress fair religion is worthy of all our soul's devotion as love of any human mistress would, let's say, is where it's going. Um, but he's already got that. That metonymic kind of um, penumbra is already there. So now he can go in another direction knowing that you have that question, isn't religion worth our soul's devotion? But now we get to as virtue was to the first blinded age. Shouldn't we love religion as much as the virtuous pagans, the Greek and Roman philosophers, loved virtue even though they didn't have the true religion? Are not heaven's joys as valiant to assuage lusts as earth's honor was to them? So shouldn't the idea of heaven help us with our baser desires as much as to the ancients, the pre-Christian ancients, um, honor on earth enabled them to control themselves. Um, so the idea of lusts is already coming in, you could say, with the beginning of that question, is not our mistress fair religion? The word mistress is the crucial um, word there that brings in the idea of lust and then he doesn't have to say um, isn't mistress worth as much as lust is isn't mistress excuse me isn't religion our fair mistress worth as much as lust is he can go right to the virtues of antiquity and say they managed not to embrace lust um, shouldn't we also embrace a mistress as worthwhile as the mistress they embraced, which was not lust, but the refusal of lust. Um, so I'm just, so Dunn is, of course, just packing everything in and unpacking it this way, um, I think enables you to see that it actually is packed in that way, um, that there is method to um, his rapidity and density and compactness. Um, However, or alas, someone start with alas and let's say read to uh, line 20. Um, we're going around the room, so Han. Alas, <clears throat> as we do them in means, shall they surpass us in the end? And shall thy father's spirit meet blind philosophers in heaven, whose merit of strict life may be imputed faith, and hear thee, whom he taught so easy ways and near to follow damned? Or if thou darest fear this, this fear great courage and high valor is. Darest thou aid mutinous Dutch, and darest thou lay be in ships' wooden sepulchres, a prey to leaders' rage, to storms, to shot, to dearth? Darest thou dive seas and dungeons of the earth? Okay, so yeah, I mean, they, these rhetorical questions will continue. Um, but so we surpass the ancients in means, how? We have the true religion, yeah. So we surpass them in means. We have the true religion. Um, but shall they surpass us in the end? The end here being, or what again is the metonymic association, means and? Ends. And ends, yeah. But surpassing us in the end also means? 
to like ability. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Oh, like the ability to assuage lust. Yeah, but in the end, just just um, uh, idiomatically means what? Death. Oh. No, idiomatically. Just if you use it, you know. Sorry. No, no, I, I mean I mean the exact um, opposite use of the the, the least um, intense use of the phrase in the end. Yeah. You know, in the end, it doesn't really matter to me whether we go to um, use Dan or Starbucks. Um, it's not like, well, when the final day of judgment comes and God says, where did you get your coffee? <laughs> Will he say you were indifferent between Usdan and Starbucks? Didn't you get fair trade coffee? How dare you? Um, yeah, in the end basically means here. So when everything, when, when everything is done, will they surpass us in the end? Will their final score be better than us? So I don't mean, so I think you're right that in the end here means um, when salvation is decided upon, but it is also being used idiomatically, um, its meaning is simply the idiomatic meaning, in the end, blah, blah, blah. And in this case, it's in the end, who will be saved? But it's not in the end times who will be saved, it's in the end. Yeah. No, it's sort of like the equivocation in the word ultimately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ultimately, I would care, which is, it's overall. Right. Uh, but you could use ultimately to mean. Yeah. Where shall we find ourselves ultimately? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimate means in the end, or in in, in the in the final um, uh, analysis. So um, so, but again, notice that there's this echoing in your mind as a metonymic association between means and ends. Um, here are the means, but um, you know, do the means justify the ends or not? Um, but he's just letting that flicker through your mind. He doesn't have to insist on it. Um, so, as, alas, as we do them in means, shall they surpass us in the end? Um, and you could say, alas, as we do them in resources, shall they still surpass us in the end? And you wouldn't... So the word end isn't implying that the word means was introducing it. Um, the word means is introducing the word end, but not in such a way that it's introducing the word end so that it can only be the other shoe falling from the word means. So um, in the end, I guess it doesn't matter that much. Um, Alas, as we do them in means, shall they surpass us in the end? And shall thy father's spirit meet blind philosophers in heaven whose merit of strict life may be imputed faith? Um, so what's imputed faith? During the Reformation, yeah, that's when God—that's the sign of God's grace that you've been elected to be saved. Yeah, even though in this case you weren't baptized and didn't know the true religion. So there's a debate. Um, it's actually a long-standing debate about what happens to virtuous pagans, um, what happens to those who didn't know about Christianity, um, and but still lived good lives. Um, do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? What happens to them? It's a, it's a big question in Dante. Um, and um, the idea that they are in... That, and it also is what happens to Old Testament figures, um, those who were not baptized because um, even though they were prophets and righteous, um, they lived before Christ. 
So one doctrine is the doctrine of imputed faith, that if you live a good life and couldn't have known, God imputes, gives you credit for faith, even though you didn't actually have faith. Um, and that's a good thing that he does, because it saves people who obviously should be saved, um, but who didn't have the opportunity to be saved according to our opportunities. So, shall thy father's spirit meet blind philosophers in heaven? Blind in the sense of um, not knowing the truth. Um, maybe blind as in the sense of some Greek prophets as well. Although I don't, I can't think of any Greek or Roman philosophers who are blind. Do, Homer? Yeah, but he's not a philosopher. I mean, I mean, we know he is. But, <laughs> um, that's not what Dunn is. Maybe the the figure of Tiresias. Yeah, I mean, he was a seer, but yeah. So there are blind prophets um, and there are blind poets. Um, here, yeah, may, you know what? That could be a metonymic um, slippage as well. That is, you read blind philosophers, meaning um, philosophers of, of Greek antiquity, and of course you think Homer and Tiresias. Um, and that allows the idea of philosophers to embrace them. But um, so... Um, Will your father's spirit meet blind philosophers in heaven? So what happens to your father? Where is your father? Dead. And in heaven. in heaven. So here, again, notice how quickly he's, he's setting up the situation. So your father was saved. Um, but look at you, because the world is getting worse. So is this what's going to happen? Your father's spirit will meet blind philosophers in heaven whose merit of strict life may be imputed faith. So they had the merit of living a strict life, which was, um, therefore, they had faith imputed them. And shall your father hear thee, whom he taught so easy ways and near to follow, damned? So your father will be in heaven. What will he hear about after you die? Yeah. He'll say, where's Junior? <laughs> He must be dead by now. <laughs> it's been a long time. He's at least 103 years old, if he's still alive. Um, and Oh, Junior, sorry. <laughs> um, he was damned. Um, and then your father won't be able to believe it. He taught you the easy way to be saved. And look what happened to you. Oh, if thou darest fear this... So what's interesting about that? If you dare to fear is a strange concept. Yeah. Um, if Yeah. Daring to fear is a strange concept. We call it an oxymoron. Um, and the idea would be, if you don't dare to fear, what does that show? Fear. fear. Yeah, it shows fear. Yeah. yeah, and it shows fear of, um, of confronting the very thing that you really need to confront. So you should fear. It's important to fear, to fear God, to fear the future, to see what um, the situation we're really in. Um, but if you imagine yourself, if, if, if you simply say, not me, I'm a brave fellow, um, I have brave scorn, um, I, um, I needn't, um, I, don't, I don't fear anything, um, what Don is saying is you actually don't dare to fear. You're just blinding yourself. You're telling yourself that it's not an issue. So, oh, if thou darest fear this, this fear 
great courage and high valor is. So confronting this is great courage and high valor. Um, if you want to really show great courage and high valor, then fear this. No. No, okay. Um, darest thou aid mutinous Dutch? So the Dutch were um, Protestants who were um, rebelling um, against the um, Spanish Catholic kingdom that they were part of. Um, a rebellion that um, went on for quite a long time and that um, finally succeeded. Um, but this is a Protestant versus Catholic um, uh, war. And um, he's saying even if you're on what he presumably at this point, although it's not absolutely certain, thinks is the right side because Dunn went from being a Catholic to being a Protestant. Even if you're on the right side, um, you may be helping them for political reasons, not for religious and moral reasons. So you're um, daring to aid the mutinous Dutch, and darest thou lay thee in ships' wooden sepulchres, a prey to leaders' rage, to storms, to shot, to dearth? Darest thou dive seas and dungeons of the earth? So do you really dare to do all these things? Um, go on from there, Nikki. Hast thou courageous fire to thaw the ice of frozen north discoveries, and thrice colder than salamanders, like divine children in the oven, the fires of Spain and the line, whose country's limbecks to our bodies be, canst thou for gain bear, and must every he which cries not, goddess, to thy mistress, draw, or eat thy poisonous words, courage of straw. O desperate coward, wilt thou seem bold, and to thy foes and his, who made thee to stand, sent sentinel in his world's garrison thus yield and for forbidden wars leave the appointed field. Great, thank you. Yeah, so that's kind of hard. Um, so, but these are, again, things to dare. So do you have, um, are you able to explore the frozen north? Hast thou courageous fire to thaw the ice of frozen north discoveries? Um, and Thrice colder than salamanders. Um, salamanders are famous for being able to do what? They can't really do it, but do people know what the mythology of salamanders are? Something about fire. Yeah, they can live in fire. Um, fire is a perfectly fine element for them. They, um, they live in fire the way goldfish live in water. Um, so, and so are you... Sorry? <laughs> is Jar Jar a salamander? Charizard is a Pokemon. Oh, Charizard, yeah. Um, is he a lizard? I, no, I mean, Charmander would be, would imply salamander. Oh, yeah, right. so. oh, yeah that's probably what. And there, I mean, there's a Japanese mythology. Sorry, I'm getting way off. Never mind. <laughs> um, I think a lot of the, at least, American names for Pokemon are literary references like King Lear, Kingler. Oh, oh my god, I never got that. Wow. Kingler. 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 Crabby what about Snorlax? I think that's just because... Yeah. <laughs> I think he just... He's my favorite stuff. Well, the funny thing is there's no, there's no Japanese, like, onomatopoeia in the ja native Japanese. Like, there's, there's no onomatopoeia in the Japanese names for them. Mm. They're just the phonetic, phonetic pronunciations of yeah. the Americanized names. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right, Kingler, that's <laughs> wow. <laughs> now I've got to read that play. <laughs> read it. I know. Yeah, just for Pokemon. Got to catch them all. Um, okay. 
I know you guys are exactly the right age for Pokemon to be your <laughs> childhood, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, if you talk to four-year-olds now about Pokemon, they would. No idea. You are so square. It's terrifying. <laughs> uh, it's true. What? My what son's is obsessed with Pokemon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also oh. like twenty seasons later, totally removed from the original. Is Ash still the main character? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Ash, here are some flyers <laughs> that the frozen salamander, that the salamanders are cold enough to live in. Um, so, um, and thrice colder than salamanders, can you like divine children in the oven? That is, um, this is a reference to, anyone know? The Book of Daniel. Sorry? I said it sounds <laughs> yeah. Um, Which story in the book of Daniel? Um, uh, I think Daniel himself is put in the. In oh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That one. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was like their na- their Babylonian names that they were given, and then they had to go into the fiery furnace, but God protected them, and they survived in the fire. Oh. Yeah, Whoa. and Daniel said they would survive, or Daniel helped them yeah. survive. Like yeah. the Seven Sleepers, like that kind of story. Or is it Seven Sleepers? Those kids that got, like, bricked in and then they miraculously were alive, like, how many years later? Like, hundreds of years later? Yeah. So, are, can you, like Divine Children in the Oven, in the book of Daniel, can you, the fires of Spain and the line, that is, and the equator, whose country's limbex to our bodies be, canst thou for gain bear? Um, so are you able to tolerate all this? Um, can you go to Spain, which is as bad as um, the children placed in the oven? Um, is that a reference to the Inquisition? Um, it may be, but it's <coughs> fighting against Spain, again, for gain. I see. So okay. it's, it's um, um, battling in the New World um, after the Armada for who's going to... Um, um, so Dunn was 16 years old when the Armada took place. Oh, what's your note say? My note says the Spanish Inquisition. All right. No one expects it. You weren't expecting it. Yeah, I was mine, definitely mine, not expecting it. Mine says the auto de fe of the Spanish Inquisition. Okay. Um, but why would you bear it for gain? I mean, what? It's, I think that's a matter. I think, okay, what I'm going to say is, yeah, metonymically, it's certainly the Spanish Inquisition. But can you tolerate... Um, the equator, can you tolerate um, Spain, can you tolerate um, all those countries which are limbecks to our bodies? What is? What do you have for limbeck? See above. Oh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. The line. Oh, yes, look. <laughs> it just says the, the note above it is the line, the equator. It says, mine says Olympics. This is a really stupid Olympics? edition. Yeah. <laughs> what does yours oh. say? I'm looking. Um, Hold on, I'm in the wrong place. What I was going to say about the gain is that I think the idea might be, would, would you risk going to a Catholic country where you might be okay. snatched up by the Inquisition? Oh, here, it's, it's a C above it in a different page. Limbic, a limbic, an apparatus used in alchemical distillation. Okay. Um, so what that means is that um, can you go to a place where it would feel to you like you were being cooked over a fire by an alchemist? Um, or where you were being distilled into liquid by an alchemist. Um, this note suggests that it's um, that it would produce sweat in you, which is um, alchemists would be sweating their materials and getting some liquid out of them, and that's what would happen to you. That reminds me of the, the legend of Saint Cecilia, and she when um, 
she was put in the fire by the Roman um, uh, authorities, and she didn't die. Like mm -hmm. boiling, boiling mm -hmm. that. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So, um, can you bear all this for gain? Um, and again, that suggests that helping the mutinous Dutch is, is something which is reasons of um, of competition for material goods, even though it seems religious. Um, can you go against the Spanish Inquisition? Um, again, for reasons that, that seem religious, and you can drum up. I mean, it, it's, you know, luckily things have changed, and... Um, <laughs> The only issues for our being in um, the Middle East and um, are, are um, purely moral ones rather than, you know, oil. Um, but the Checking to make sure they know you're being ironic. <laughs> yes. People don't always know. <laughs> I've discovered that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> um, so... Um, I think that there's a strong suggestion here that these are religious wars um, whose actual motivations are not religious but are mercenary. Um, if they were religious, then there would be at least some version of religious courage being shown here. Um, but the suggestion is that it's mercenary. It's that guy. <laughs> um... Did anyone see who it was? I can Yeah, okay, so I won't say anymore. Um, <laughs> even having said that. Um, so canst thou gain this for bait? Can, can you bear this for gain? And must every he which cries not goddess to thy mistress, so every guy who doesn't think your mistress is a goddess, um, draw or eat thy poisonous words? What does that mean? Sword. Yeah, so um, so everyone who doesn't say, "Oh my God, your mistress is the most beautiful person who ever lived. She's a goddess." Um, do they do they have to confront you in a duel or um, <laughs> suck up your insults? This is all courage of straw. What does that mean? Courage. Yeah, courage made of straw, not of um, anything strong. Oh, desperate coward! Wilt thou seem bold, and to thy foes and his, who made thee to stand sentinel in his world's garrison, thus yield, and for forbidden wars leave the appointed field? So what does that mean? Who's the his there? The desperate coward. No. Um, interesting that it seems that way at first, but um, the question is, wilt thou seem bold and what? What's the next verb? Yield. Yield. Um, and yield means what? Submit. Submit to thy foes and his. Um, so will you seem bold but actually submit to your foes and his? The his who did what? Made thee to stand as sentinel. Oh, so God. Yes. So... There you are being all brave and um, willing to show how brave you are in all these different situations, and actually you're a desperate coward because you will yield to God's foes who are also 
your foes. So you're yielding to thy foes and his, and what did God want you to do? Did he want you to fight? No. What did he want you to do? Submit. No? Stand sentinel. Stand sentinel. So basically, um, what you did was you were made a sentinel. You were to stand sentinel in his world's garrison. So this world is God's garrison. Um, that is where um, his virtuous... Um, Forces, military forces, are guarding the borders of his world from the devil. And you were placed on watch duty. No one asked you to fight. They just asked you to watch, to be alert, to stand sentinel. Um, and you abandoned your post. You deserted your post. Um, and it's the oldest rule in military law that if a, sent if a sentinel deserts his post, um, that's a capital offense. Um, and it's not that he's done something, you know, really selfish or really um, um, self-dealing, but if, if you fall asleep at your post as a sentinel, you can be executed. Um, summary judgment can be done upon you. Um, so that's what Dunn is saying. Are you going to be the kind of person who will leave the appointed field, that is, the place where you're supposed to stand guard, um, why? For forbidden wars, for wars that don't have anything to do with anything. Um, so you're going off and fighting when you were supposed to be standing guard. And you think you're courageous because you're willing to fight, but you're not courageous enough to stand guard. That's what he's saying here. So, oh, desperate coward like a sentinel who deserts. Wilt thou seem bold by going to fight in Spain or in the north? And while seeming bold, thus yield to thy foes and his, the person who made thee to stand sentinel in his world's garrison, um, will you yield yourself, submit, and leave the appointed field in order to fight these forbidden wars? Um, go on from there, um, Abby. Thank you. Um, all right, so um, know thy foes. So who are those foes? Those are thy foes and his. Know thy foes. Who are they? The devil, the foul devil, he whom thou strivest to please. So you want to please the devil. That's what you're working. All this work you're doing is to try to please the devil. Um, for hate, not love, would allow thee feign his whole realm to be quit. Okay, that's a little bit hard, but to be quit means um, that he would give you, he would requite you with his whole realm. Why? No, it's... Sorry? Yeah, so is he showing you love by giving him his whole realm? No. No, hate. Because it's hell. Because it's hell. <laughs> 
So God will hate you and the devil will hate you too. Um, but the devil's hatred, the devil hates you because you are in God's image, whereas God hates you because you don't do what you're supposed to do. So it's not as though, well, God may hate me, but at least I have a friend in the devil. Um, and a friend of the devil is a friend of mine. Um, but rather, um, sure, the devil will give you, give you everything that he owns. Um, in order to pay you for what you're doing for him, for fighting for him. Um, but he's not doing it out of love. He's doing it out of hatred for you because everything he owns is terrible. So again, this is typical of Dunn's, um, now we can say, um, metonymic um, way of seeing everything, seeing both sides of an alternative as both bad. When you have an alternative, one side of an alternative reminds you of the other. Um, hate or love, good or bad, um, reward or punishment. But for Dunn, who's thinking metonymically, reward, since it reminds you of punishment, can turn into punishment. So whenever you have a kind of set of paired implicit pair terms in done, love or hate. Love can remind you of hate and therefore can slip into hate in his set of imagery, but also in his analysis of how the world works. Um, if you do something for love of the devil, um, love reminds you of hate and the devil will respond to you with hate. Um, and it's not that you get analogies which can be just flipped over but maintain their same structure in Dunn. It's that the analogies don't maintain their structure. They slip into what you really don't want. So the fact that you and God have the same foes doesn't mean that this shows you're on God's side because you're too stupid to realize that these foes are your foes. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. I think this is connected to the, the theme here of self-deception. Mm -hmm. You can see that when he says, whom thou strivest, the foul devil, he whom thou strivest to please. Yeah. Where strive means work to please. You're actually right. making an active effort. But the point is you don't know you're doing that. Because mm -hmm. um, presumably if you knew that, you wouldn't be doing it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So know thy foes. So what looks like, I'm sorry, just to finish out the yeah. thing, what looks like love to you is actually hate. Yes. It's your self-deception that's reversed the nature of everything. Yes, yeah. I think we can also read that in the word feign. Mm -hmm. And the other feign, F-E-I-G-N, you know, the first yes. feign is that joy, mm -hmm. and then feign as a deception, too. And so that's, that kind of resounds um, exactly what um, Professor Pinnell was saying. Yes, good. So, yeah. So he would allow the feign, through feigning, he would very willingly allow you, his whole realm to be quit, to have <coughs> his whole realm. But why? for hate, not love. And um, there's also probably a hanging question, is the foul devil, he whom thou strivest to please, I think this is how, how you were reading it first, Justy, for hate, not love. Uh, that is, you, you strive to please the devil not because you love him, because, but because you hate him. Is, it might look like it means that, but I think it, when you realize that's not what it means, you might have to reevaluate that meaning as something like, you strive to please the devil because you too are filled with hatred, not love. Um, for hate of whom? Well, for hate of God. Um, you strive to please the devil because hatred is your mode. 
And so striving to please the devil, you're like the devil. Um, for hate, not for love, you will lie with this thing. Um, because you are filled with hate, and the devil is happy to be allied with you because he hates you. So your hatred for the world, for yourself, for God, allies you with the devil. The devil's hatred for you allies him with you. And again, that's, it's not metaphorical. It's not a mirror image. It's metonymical. There's plenty of hate to go around, and it can flow in all sorts of different pathways, um, all of which are, um, are blazed. All of these paths are blazed by metonymy. Um, metonymy is really, really tricky because it means that you can't count on some image or analogy which, if you at least stick to that, um, everything will be fine. Um, because they can always morph into something else through association, and their structures don't hold. Um, so, and as the world's all parts wither away and pass, so just the way everything in the world withers away and passes, so the world's self, thy other loved foe, is in her decrepit wane. So the world itself is waning, is becoming decrepit, and yet you love it. Um, and the world is your foe. And thou loving this, dost love a withered and worn strumpet. So the world that you love is a withered and worn strumpet. Last, flesh itself's death and joys which flesh can taste, thou lovest. Um, so flesh is the death of itself. Um, I don't think the, it might be that the apostrophe S there is is, and flesh, which is itself death. But I think it's flesh is its own death, is what he means here. Flesh, which is its own death, because to be flesh is to die. Um, flesh, no one else got that. itself's yeah. death. Who are you referring to? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and joys. <laughs> and joys which flesh can taste, thou lovest. So you love flesh, you love the joys that flesh can taste. That is, um, you know, at least some of the seven deadly sins, gluttony. Um, and thy fair goodly soul, which doth give this flesh power to taste joy, thou dost loathe. So the very thing that animates your flesh gives it the power to taste joy. Well, you loathe that. Um, so again, you're loving the wrong thing. Um, OK, uh, start at line, Taylor at line uh, 43. Seek true religion, aware. Miriam's thinking her unhoused here, and fled from us, seeks her at Rome. There, because he doth know that she was there a thousand years ago. He loves her rags so, as we were here obey, the state cloth with the prince at yesterday. Prince to such brave loves will not be enthralled, but loves her only, who at Geneva is called religion, plain, simple, sullen, young, contemptuous, yet unhandsome, as among lecherous humors there is one that judges, no wench is wholesome, but coarse country drudges. Okay, so uh, we can stop there. I, but do you have notes on Marius and Kranz? Um, 
the Seekers, and through True Religion, the Catholic Marius, the Calvinist Prance, the Anglican Grius, the Separatist Phrygius, Phrygius, yeah, Phrygius, and the uh, Erastian Gracchus. <laughs> of course, the Erastian Gracchus. That's helpful for you. Uh, <laughs> Okay, just these are these are not real names. These are names of, as you often have in satire, they're names of types, and you can figure out the type. They are um, essentially by the ethnicity or national origin suggested by the names. So Marius is a Roman name, um, and so seek true religion. Aware, one person would think that it's among the Catholics. Marius thinking her unhoused here. Um, that is here in England, um, and fled from us. We're no longer religious. What does Marius do? Um, he seeks her at Rome. Why there? Because he doth know that she was there a thousand years ago um, in the primitive church, in the early church, in the year 600. Um, he loves her rags so as we here obey the state cloth where the prince sat yesterday. Um, that is um, here we think well the prince was sitting here and we have a kind of superstitious reverence for ooh the prince was there um, so he thinks true, Marius thinks true religion will be at Rome because a thousand years ago it was um, he loves her rags so um, but he's wrong obviously so that's not where to find true religion Krantz a kind of German name and therefore um, a name associated with Lutherism or Calvinism Krantz, to such brave loves, will not be enthralled. Um, that is, to the relics of the Roman church, will not be enthralled, but loves her only, who at Geneva is called religion. So Geneva is, is what? Swiss, yeah. Although it actually isn't Swiss at the time, but, but let's just say Swiss. Um, it's an independent uh, state associated with what um, theological figure? Anyone? Calvin. Calvin, yeah. Um, so uh, Calvinism is the religion of Geneva, and um, Calvinism is extremely severe, um, doesn't believe in any holy relics whatever. Um, the idea that you would um, go to Rome because there are the rags of the true religion there, for Calvin that would be just the wrong thing. Um, so Krantz only loves her, who at Geneva is called religion. Plain, that's good. Simple, okay. Sullen, well, young, contemptuous yet unhandsome. As among lecherous humors, there's one that judges no wench is wholesome, but coarse country drudges. So um, there are some um, lechers who really like a certain um, female type. Um, only coarse country drudges, not anyone who's more beautiful and more refined. Now remember what Dunn Speaker says of himself, I can love any, her whom abundance melts, or her whom wants betrays, her whom the country forms, and her the town. Um, here its religion is being described um, according to a similar set of different kinds of um, figures. And so here the Calvinist thinks that the only place you can get religion is in this kind of crude severity, um, contemptuous, unhandsome, plain, simple, sullen, young. Um, then Graeus stays still at home here. And 
here in England, and because some preachers, vile, ambitious bawds, and laws still new like fashions, bid him think that she which dwells with us is only perfect, he embraceth her whom his godfathers will tender to him, being tender as wards still take such wives as their guardians offer or pay values. Um, so here's Graeus who thinks, all right, um, the English preachers are saying, here's the, here's the right religion to take. You should marry this one. Um, Graeus is tender and therefore takes what's tendered to him. Um, that's a joke Polonius makes in Hamlet. Um, tender me not um, such... Um, if you take his tenders, you will tender me a fool, is what Polonius says to Ophelia about Hamlet. Um, and um, because you're believing what your godfathers say and they're just stupid and just go with whatever, um, the fashion is you accept what they say rather than thinking it through, and that's no good either. Don't just be... Um, someone who accepts what their godfathers say. And finally, there's Careless Phrygius, the Erastrian, right, <laughs> um, who doth abhor all because all cannot be good. So here is yet another attitude. All religions are bad because they can't all be right. Um, so now there's Careless Phrygius, who doth abhor all because all cannot be good. Um, actually, I'm reading for you, but we're almost out of time. As one knowing some women whores dares marry none. Um, so who does that remind you of? The speaker of Love's Alchemy. Okay, or uh, is that what you were going to say, Nikki? No, hold on. The one that we thought it was supposed to be romantic in the end, or whatever. We, it was, the end was hard. To yeah, go and catch a falling star. Yeah. And swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. If thou findst one, yeah, let me know. And yet she will be false here I come to two or three. Yeah. Um, so, um, Phrygius doth abhor all, because all cannot be good. So he, he lets himself out of having to um, be religious at all. Careless Phrygius. Oh, I'm just going to live my own life. Um, religion is, is um, you know, we know it's all bad, and so I don't have to worry about it. I'll just be a bachelor when it comes to religion. Um, and then there's Gracchus, who loves all as one, thinks all religions are fine. Gracchus loves all as one and thinks that so as women do in diverse countries go in diverse habits. So women in different clothing in different um, countries, but yet are still one kind. Um, so women are basically the same everywhere, even though they wear different clothes in different countries. Um, so doth, so is religion. And this blindness too much light breeds. Um, and so here again, um, we have the idea that one religion can stand for all, and there are two mistakes that you can make there, that Phrygius can think they're all whores, and that Gracchus can think they're all good. Um, and generalizing about all religions either way is the wrong thing to do. Um, and therefore he's blind to their differences, which breeds too much light. Um, that is too much lightness. 
Um, so there's a pun on the word light, but it's also he's just too um, willing to embrace any any of them. His morals are light, but unmoved thou, a force must one and forced but one allow. So you have to really pick the right religion. And the right, ask thy father which is she. How will you know which is the right religion? Ask your father. Let him ask his. So how do you know what the right religion is? That's a really hard question. And he's basically up to this point, again, like Go and Catch a Falling Star, has said, you know, any idea that you have about the right religion slash right woman, um, there are going to be problems with all of them. Um, again, think of what he said about women in all the songs and sonnets. There's the indifferent who will embrace all women. Um, there's love's alchemy who will embrace none. Um, there's go and catch a falling star who thinks maybe there'll be a special one, but then she won't be special. Um, here he's talking about religions in the same way that he's been talking about women before. Um, so how do you find the right religion? Because you'd better, if not, you're going to go to hell. It's not like you can just say, all right, I'm just going to give up on religion slash women. That's no good either. Well, ask your father. Let him ask his. And then this part, though truth and falsehood be near twins. So that's crucial. The truth and falsehood are practically twins. Yet truth a little elder is. So there's a slight chance that you'll find the truth. Be busy to seek her. Believe me this, he's not of none nor worst that seeks the best. So at least look for truth. Don't give up looking for it is what um, the very difficulty of finding the truth that would make you despair also tells you, in fact, points you on your way. Again, an alternative metonymically slips into take the other one. So it's really hard to find truth when truth and falsity are twins. That's the good part, is that it's hard. Believe me this, he's not of none nor worst who seeks the best to adore or scorn an image or protest may all be bad. Doubt wisely, in strange way to stand, inquiring right is not to stray, to sleep or run wrong is. So working to figure out what the truth is. Doubt wisely. Stand there like a sentinel trying to figure out where to go rather than running in one direction. And then this famous image, metaphor, on a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands. And he that will reach her about must and about must go. And what the hill's suddenness resists, win so, yet strive so that before age, death's twilight, thy soul rest for none can work in that night. We'll have to stop there. But the idea is that to find the truth, you really have to work. And that's what we've been doing and what he wants us to be doing in interpreting this poem. Um, you, have to, you can't go straight to the truth. It's on this hard, craggy hill, which is like this poem. And you have to wind around it and wind around it and wind around it. And as long as you're always seeking truth, if you exhaust yourself, you're doing the right thing. That's what he's saying. So life is hard and that's good would be the one-line version of this. All right, have a good break. Um, but keep looking for the truth. <laughs>